Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On our last podcast, I spoke with Father Tad Boholchik and Dr. John Grabenstein about science-related ethical concerns with the COVID-19 vaccine being developed by the biotech firm Moderna. Today, we begin with reactions to this prior podcast and then address some of the additional ethical challenges regarding vaccines for COVID-19. Our guests are NCBC President Dr. Joseph Meany and staff ethicist Dr. John DiCamillo. Joseph Meany and John DiCamillo, welcome back to our Bioethics On Air podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Joe. Good to be here. All right. So as I mentioned in the introduction, on our previous podcast, we focused on science-related ethical concerns associated with the uh, Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. Just want to ask both of you, what comments or insights um, would you like to offer or can you offer in terms of what was discussed? Joseph. So I thought that uh, the discussion was very good on the scientific level. So there was a lot of things that came out, in particular, you know, how how the companies approach developing vaccines, uh, what kind of tools they have in their toolbox. It, it actually showed a lot of the structural problems in the pharmaceutical industry. So they're very wedded to these uh, embryonic stem cell lines you know, uh, derived from abortions. And they have a very hard time getting away from that. And so it's really going to require a very decided change uh, at the top. You know, and, and people demanding changes for these companies to totally get away from, uh, you know, the HEK-293 lines and all the other cell lines that are derived from abortions. Yeah. Just a, a quick clarification, Joseph, you said embryonic stem cell lines. I, I, did you mean to say fetal cell lines from Correct. abortions? Yep. That's right. I'll pick that up. John DiCamillo, your comments. Yeah, I thought it was excellent as well to be able to see and to hear from two very great thinkers, researchers. Um, Father Tad always does an excellent job of explaining things and uh, bringing that uh, scientific expertise that he has to bear on these issues uh, in addition to the moral complexity. So um, I, I liked the fact that, you know, with this Moderna vaccine in particular, I think we've all been seeing in, in the work that we do um, just how much controversy there has been over the actual science itself and and is this an ethically derived vaccine or not? You know, what is the process? And so to see some of that hashed out uh, also with Dr. Gravenstein, somebody who's very you know familiar with working in the industry for so many years and a faithful Catholic, um, it, it really brought a level of nuance, I think, to the discussion and clarity um, about just how complicated this all becomes, how many layers there are, how many people of goodwill there are at all different levels, um, the scientists, the researchers, the even within the industry, um, and and how sorting out all of that is, is a complex task. And uh, it sometimes is easy to reduce things uh, to more simplistic notions. So appreciating that there are struggles, you know, people, good Catholics um, in all positions, uh, both on the receiving end, uh, the end users, uh, people of you know faith trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, as well as people who are uh, working uh, in the field and, and trying to help uh, the rest of us out here <laughs> with, uh, with a reliable <laughs> vaccine. <laughs> right, yeah. So one of the takeaways from the, uh, the Father Tad, John Graben, uh, Grabenstein podcast was that 
although there may be some level of remote immediate material cooperation with the HEK293 cell line, the Moderna vaccine could be used by Catholics and others of goodwill. And I was wondering, John, starting out with you, can you evaluate this? Sure. Yeah, and this was um, nice to hear some of that discussion as well about the, the the kinds of cooperation. The fact that in any vaccine development, there has been the involvement of some biological material of illicit origin, such as the HEK293 cell line. Um, really, at the end of the day, we know that the, that it could be legitimate for Catholics to utilize a vaccine um, that's been developed and uh, manufactured with such uh, involvement as an end user. In other words, if this vaccine has been produced, it's out there, it's marketed, it's effective and reliable, etc., um, and there's no better reasonable alternative available, uh, we know from authoritative teaching from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and Dignitas Personae um, that that there can be uh, grave reasons which would be morally proportionate to justify uh, the use of such a vaccine. Uh, so certainly in that sense, um, that conclusion from the podcast is important to keep in mind that when we get to, you know, if this vaccine does make it through and is effective and all these other sorts of things, we know that at least the the issue of the HEK-293 involvement should not be something that um, that will prevent everyone from using the vaccine. There will need to be individual judgments of conscience as to uh, whether there are morally proportionate reasons to go ahead and use it, but it could be used, certainly. Right. Joseph Meany. Yeah, so I would just add that the, the conscience piece here is very important uh, because there are people who are going to object uh, for conscientious reasons, and their objections need to be heard and respected. So, uh, you know, the, the church is is very clear that vaccines should not be developed using cell lines derived from abortions uh, or or other illicit origins. And and in a sense, you know, my my sympathy goes to the people who say no, I don't want to do this, right. and and who say, look, it's unfair that uh, this is being done to us, you know, and, and we're not being given options that are, you know, that have no moral problems to them. So in a sense, and I also kind of look at it almost from a practical perspective, right? I mean, if if individuals, if companies are told, you know, there's a problem with this, but people can take it anyway, there's a certain sense in which they're going to say, well, this is not a real problem because everyone's going to take it anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think it is a real problem because there are lots of people who are not going to to be willing to compromise and 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 take this. Um, you know, I, I think the Moderna is is actually a better vaccine in the sense that it, the, the cooperation is is even more remote than than other ones. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's a real issue. That, and I think you know companies like Sanofi Pasteur are are realizing there's a market out there. I mean, there are people who will specifically go to to them and not to a competitor if they have a, an ethical vaccine. And I think, I mean, the church would say that always if there's an alternative, you know, and you have an unethical vaccine and an ethical one, you have to go to the ethical one. But uh, the problem is that there just hasn't been that many alternatives available in some cases. Right. Yeah. I don't know about um, the two of you, but I've noticed when I've been on consult duty. So the NCBC, we have a 24-hour consult service. I've noticed a, a pretty substantial uptick in the past couple of weeks of people writing in or calling in and asking this very question about, 
you know, we're hearing all this stuff about vaccines. What, what should I do? What should I not do? And I, I, as I said, I've fielded that call and that email a number of times, and I'm, I'm going to assume the two of you have as well. Sure. Yeah, that's correct. Definitely. Yeah. So another takeaway from the, uh, from the Father Tad and John Grabenstein podcast was that HEK-293 cells may be being used in confirmatory testing for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, and possibly even other vaccines may be, uh, may be using them as well. Can you comment on, Joseph, first, can you comment on the ethical implications of this? Right. I mean, it shows to me that there's a structural problem structural problem uh, with the way the science is done. Uh, these companies don't seem to get it, that there's a problem with the, the, the cell lines derived from, from abortions. And so, you know, the standard tests uh, include these cell lines and, and, you know, they would have to comp- create entirely new standard tests. Uh, and, and they just you know, don't really want to do that because it's, uh, you know, it's what they have now and it works. And uh, unless someone really forces them, I think there's going to be um, a resistance. So it, I think it's really tragic. John DiCamillo. Yes, I think that uh, this is sort of a good place to emphasize a the distinction between the levels of uh, development of the vaccine or uh, production and manufacturing of the vaccine. In other words, yeah, this is also good. one of those themes that was discussed, you know, in the yep. first, uh, in the previous podcast, but just to kind of drive home and, pu- you know, pull out these layers here. Um, the church's teaching is speaking to the problems with development in general. In other words, we shouldn't really be using these in development period. And, and development, I would say, is sort of the biggest, broadest term. Um, it's often used sort of interchangeably with production. Uh, and in both cases, you're talking about research and testing, basically. Um, and you could also be then including the manufacturing of it. But when you talk about manufacturing, now you're basically at post, you know, development, post-production. Here it is. Now we're manufacturing it on an ongoing basis. And so there's, there is a, a certain ethical significance to that distinction, I would say, in that um, I think it's, it's clear from a cooperation standpoint, it's a much more serious matter if a vaccine is using HEK-293 in the manufacturing process, because that's an right. ongoing continued use of the cell line. And those are the ones that we've really traditionally, you know, immediately singled out as, yes, these are the problem vaccines, the sort of, um, you know, problematically sourced vaccines, because in the manufacturing, they're using that cell in an ongoing way. Right. Whereas the Moderna issue really brought out the fact that, well, actually, they're, they're not using it in manufacturing. And, and for all the controversy that's, that's out there, I don't think there's dispute about the point that because it's an mRNA vaccine, it's a cell-free vaccine, it's actually not using HEK-293 in the manufacturing. However, there were these questions about, and, and I, I would say, you know, there's still some conflicting information out there, but consensus seems to be that it is, um, it is maybe Moderna has relied on information from other organizations or researchers who tested using the HEK-293, and then that became part of how Moderna developed its particular spike protein. Um, but even that point is contested. Did they even need that? Did they use that? There was a reference to it in a patent, et cetera. So it's a complex um, area, but the point is uh, when we come back to, okay, so you know, can we um, pu- you know, pull out these, these layers? If Moderna's using the um, HEK-293 for some of the 
testing, the confirmatory testing. Um, we're still, in a sense, at a pre-manufacturing stage um, where it's it's in the development and it really should be avoided as well there. Um, but it is going to be a less grave matter uh, from the moral standpoint, um, as opposed to if it had been if it had been intending to use this in the manufacturing process on an ongoing basis, because they would do that confirmatory testing, it might be sort of one time and done. Um, whereas again, the ongoing manufacturing is more serious. But I don't want to give the impression everything is okay, and this is right. you know another key point, right? So it's not that everything is okay because it's used only in development or testing. That's a moral problem. And that is something, as Dr. Meany pointed out, I mean, this is something there, there should be opposition to the use altogether in development uh, and research. Um, <clears throat> but it will be, in a sense, morally evaluated in a similar way to, you know, a company having used or relied upon um, other companies to, to do some of that testing um, and or to have provided information about it that helped the development process. But for me personally, I mean, I would say, given what I understand at this point, if Moderna is in fact using HEK-293 in confirmatory testing, uh, it seems to me that they're they're definitely on a lower footing ethically than the companies that are totally cell free, <laughs> right? And and we want to be we want to be promoting all the research that is excluding any use of HEK-293 or other kinds of um, cells derived from aborted fetal tissue. Very good. All right, so we've we've focused on the HEK293 issue, and we'll kind of put that to bed right now. So aside from any links to aborted fetal cell lines, are there any other reasons why Catholics and really anyone of goodwill might be cautious or might not even want to accept a COVID-19 vaccine? John. Yes, absolutely. In fact, for all the, the complexity of the issue of the HEK-293 and the you know illicit origin, I actually think you know the more serious issue here is going to be um, in questions of effectiveness, you know, the problems with the rushing to get it to the market. Is it adequately safe? Um, what kind of you know information are we going to be able to rely upon to say this is something that in a simple benefits and burdens analysis for an individual like am I at risk in taking this vaccine? Um, it's essentially experimental, um, even though it may have gone through and gotten out to approval. Uh, if it's an expedited process, there's always these these kinds of concerns. You know, and it's one thing to say if it's expedited simply by, you know, speeding up the, the bureaucratic process, as it were, well, we're going to process your paperwork faster. <laughs> you know, we're going to put you at the top of the, the, the list for review and bump everybody else back. Well, that's one thing. And that won't really affect, you know, the, the safety issues. But it's another matter to say, well, we're going to skip <laughs> animal testing, which they have. And we're going to, you know, perhaps skip uh, phase three trials or in some other way, you know, lower the bar for what's acceptable since we're in such urgent need. Um, and then you really have, hey, we might have let this go through because we really need it quickly. But that means it's actually much more experimental still than than the typical rigorous process uh, that Father Tad referenced in the previous podcast. Right. Joseph, your comments. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a, there's a certain unknown factor here. I mean, also with regard to the Moderna vaccine, you know, it's a completely new process. So I, I don't know if a, a vaccine has been developed using the process that they're using, but you know that is so 
so new that there might be some issues with it that uh, we just don't know about. Yeah, and I would latch on to that, uh, Dr. Meany, because you're absolutely right. The novelty in general of the approach, um, from what I've read, I mean, there's there's no precedent for a successful coronavirus vaccine in general. Like, and there's there was SARS and there was MERS and there was lots of research happening on those. But to my understanding, they never had a successfully approved and, and effective vaccine come out of that. Um, and so those were other coronaviruses. And here we are with coronavirus again. Um, and so if a coronavirus vaccine does get approved here, um, it would be a historic first. <laughs> and so that, you know, is is a bit uh, raises flags and of concern for, again, if we've not had success so far, granted, we can build on past uh, knowledge of what didn't quite work. But, uh, but it's still something that's very new. And that's going to be um, a reason for um, misgivings, I think, uh, about just how safe and effective it will be. <clears throat> I would yeah, add, I also, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, actually, I was just going to ask if the two of you could kind of pull some of these these concerns out. So, John, at the beginning of your um, your beginning of your response to this question, you identified things like rush to market, effectiveness, safety issues, which you talked a little bit more in your in your follow-up here, but also unintended side effects. And I'm wondering if, if you could kind of pull those out a bit more and, and explain to us what are, you know, what are the issues uh, or, or what are the factors involved with these various things? Sure. Um, so basically you have, in any case, the, the fundamental moral principle of proportionality of treatment uh, to deal with. In other words, what are the benefits versus the burdens? If somebody's saying, hey, should I get this vaccine? You know, what are the benefits? What are the burdens? What do I expect it will do? How likely is it that it's actually going to do that? Is it going to be effective? Um, and yep. and then what are the risks to me? You know, what could happen to me? Could it, could it cause serious complications? Could it worsen my symptoms to COVID? In fact, that was uh, something that also apparently happened with uh, one of the other coronavirus vaccines was that um, when they ended up uh, testing it in clinical trials, uh, many people wound up with worse symptoms of the the virus than those who didn't get the vaccine. So it can have these kinds of, <laughs> you know, concerning uh, side effects or unexpected uh, worsening of your condition in some cases. Uh, and so somebody, basically, that's the point is that when we say safety, when we say effectiveness, when we say side effects, we're, we're all talking about, is this a kind of intervention that is going to offer us a reasonable hope of a benefit, uh, significantly beneficial enough to outweigh the risks and, and uh, harms that may come from it. With the added fact that not only is it uh, this general equation of weighing, you know, benefits and burdens, but it's experimental. And when you get into experimental, you're really in a, in a realm where nothing is uh, strictly obligatory because we would we would usually say benefits and burdens. If the benefits outweigh the burdens, it's proportionate and therefore morally obligatory. If the burdens outweigh the benefits, you know, then it's not obligatory and you don't have to do it. But when you're in the field of experimental, because most of the benefits and burdens are projections or expectations, and you don't have enough data yet to confirm that, um, you're really never obligated to an experimental intervention. Mm. Very well stated. Joseph Meany, anything to, to add to that? Uh, I think that's, uh, that's quite accurate. I mean, I think I'll, I'll bring up uh, at a later point the whole issue of informed consent. 
But, you know, in order to have informed consent, you, you have to really understand uh, what, what the risks and benefits are. And if that's unknown, then, it, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to have proper informed consent. Mm-hmm. All right. So another question that has come up, and we've actually gotten emails and other organizations have actually forwarded emails, people asking them questions and asking us, but people are starting to raise the issue of government and government here could be federal or state level, but the issue of government mandating COVID-19 vaccinations when they become available. And my question for, for the two of you, starting with Joseph, are such mandates ethical? Can we force people to be vaccinated, particularly those who don't want to be vaccinated? Can we vaccinate them against their will? Yeah, that's a very big problem because, I mean, essentially, as, as I was saying earlier, right? I mean, modern bioethics really came out of the, of the atrocities uh, of the Second World War uh, and medical experimentation like the Tuskegee uh, syphilis uh, trials, et cetera, where the, the, the individuals were not given informed consent. You know, they were just huh, experimented upon. And in a certain sense, uh, I think we would be taking a, a step backwards in terms of, of our, our ethical progress if we're suddenly telling people, you know, we don't need your consent, we're just going to do this uh, for any medical procedure. You know, uh, I, I think uh, people need to be given as much information and, and, and allowed to make an informed choice. But, you know, I could see a situation where, you know, if, if a person had a certain kind of job, for instance, um, you know, and they're working in a hospital or they're working in some kind of high risk situation, if they wanted uh, to tell them that, you know, it's a condition of their employment uh, to get a vaccination, that you know is is proven to be safe and and effective, that might be ethically allowable. But sort of like a blanket mandate for everybody, just because you know you're a citizen of the United States or a resident of the United States, you'd have to to do this. It seems to me um, much too draconian, and and it would uh, it would go against you know just elementary human rights. John D. Camillo. Yeah, I agree with that. Very well stated uh, by Dr. Meany. It's uh, certainly something that, you know, when you ask the question, can we force people to be vaccinated against their will? You know, people, uh, if it's absolutely everybody is definitely way too broad. (laughs) You know, you can't you can't be forcing an entire population uh, to be vaccinated, particularly against their will. Um, and, And I think we also, you know, need to distinguish, as Joseph was alluding to there, when we say force, you know, are we talking about something like coercion? Um, are we talking about something that, you know, is is that severe and that draconian? Or are we talking about something that may be more akin to promoting, encouraging, enabling, you know, making it accessible, educating, you know, these kinds of efforts certainly could be done, but without a mandate as such to, uh, you know, forcibly insist that a whole group must do this, period. Um, you know, again, making it conditional on, on um, certain high risk uh, areas, like, you know, whether it's certain uh, healthcare workers in particular healthcare settings that are more prone to uh, be exposed to the disease, right? Uh, something of this sort could make a degree of sense. Um, but of course, ultimately, you have the big problem that it, there's a large degree to which this is still hinging on how much do you even really know? You know, you're still conducting some level of experimentation if it's so new and it's been so fast tracked. 
um, even if it's been technically approved uh, for for use. So I think that you have to um, you know consider those facts and really. When it comes to government decisions, you're getting into an arena where, uh, you know, the government certainly has a degree of prudential um, action it can take for the good of the population. Of course, with the proper understanding that the real and ultimate good of the population is a spiritual one, but um, I don't know if we, we're going to go into that. Uh, so, but 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 certainly for the 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 health good of the people as well, uh, certain actions could be undertaken. Yet, it is a matter of prudence. And so the government has to consider what the right means to do that are. And I think, you know, something like a a mandate or any kind of coercion, apart from the the violation of rights that may be in there, it's something that is going to automatically create mistrust, distrust, um, diffidence. Um, You know, you're going to foment uh, the very problems that we're seeing throughout our culture right now, uh, and in our society in particular, the discord, the division, you know, people are, are really, you're risking as if a government just from a prudential standpoint wanted to try to do something on a large scale of this sort, you're risking eliciting a counterproductive response that's going to create serious social problems and cultural problems, um, which would have perhaps been much better avoided through, again, more positive efforts to try to encourage and promote and to educate and to be transparent for proper informed consent. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on, uh, particularly on John DiCamillo, what you were talking about in terms of the common good, because that, that's kind of what I was thinking when I was when I was writing the question. I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate here for a second. And People who are going to support government mandates of COVID-19 vaccines will argue that doing so is really in the common good. In other words, being vaccinated, you being vaccinated not only protects yourself, but it protects others. And if you develop whatever the level of herd immunity is at, at for COVID-19, if you get there, we can protect those people who, for medical reasons or whatnot, can't be vaccinated. And so I would think that a comeback or a response to what both you and what Joseph said would be, well, what about our duty to the common good? So I guess the question comes down to how do we balance mandated COVID-19 vaccinations with a concern, actually not even, uh, actually more than a concern, with a commitment to upholding the common good? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, as I said, because there are so many prudential considerations um, that uh, that a government should take account of. Um, but I think that part of what I was alluding to and what I was saying is that the um, there's a very important place. In other words, we cannot reduce the concept of the common good mm-hmm. to public health. I, I think that's maybe a key okay. key All point right. here. So what we can point. certainly, yeah, we can certainly talk about um, public health, and that is a good, um, but the common good understood in its its complete sense in an integral way, um, just like when we talk about the human person and what's the good of the human person, we have to consider the whole human person, body and soul. And so when we consider the common good of a society, we have to consider the whole good of the society and not just the you know material or physical health and well-being of the individual members of that society. Uh, and so things like you know, the social 
atmosphere, the relations between persons, you know, questions of discord, questions of, you know, psychological, uh, spiritual implications for how that society coheres are very important uh, to the overall consideration of the common good. Joseph, Joseph Meany. Yeah, I would just add a, a practical point, which I think there are probably tons and tons of people who are, would be standing in line to get the vaccination. So I think one of the big problems that may come out is, is not that the government has a bunch of vaccines that people don't want, but rather that the demand is so high that they can't meet the demand. Uh, so and it, it may be a false problem in the sense that, um, you know, they're not really going to have to force people to get vaccinated. They're just not going to have enough vaccines for all the people wanting it, in, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. Actually, that dovetails because I, I just um, was seeing that the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine has uh, put out a draft framework for allocation of a COVID-19 vaccine seeking public comment. And so, you know, they're putting out criteria. They're basically saying, you know, we're going to have so few of these things and so many people that we need a way to allocate, <laughs> you know, who should get them first, right? How do we prioritize uh, the risk of infection, the risk of morbidity and mortality, you know, societal impact, transmitting disease to others, all these kind of risks. They're trying to say, hey, you know, just like when we were dealing with the triage protocols and it was like, hey, who should get, you know, the ventilators uh, or other kinds of care that are available, we're looking at having a vaccine shortage, as it were, and trying to prioritize those who would really benefit the most from a strict, you know, health standpoint, and trying to identify those vulnerable populations and, and prioritize them. So yeah, it's a great, absolutely important point. Yeah, I just like to uh, point out we are we are uh, recording this podcast on September fourth. So the the uh, the guidelines that John DiCamillo we were just speaking about. This is the context for. You know, for those who are who are be listening to this in the future, I would like to ask you both another quick follow up question. This this came to mind as as you both were speaking, and I and I'm drawing on my own conversations with people who who call in on our consult line, and and they're asking about vaccinations in general. We're not talking necessarily COVID nineteen, but vaccinations in general, and they're asking about you know either as a Catholic um, or or even just a person of goodwill if I if I don't um, accept these vaccines for myself, for my children, what are some of the implications and everything? And I always tell them, I said, well, you know, you have the right to conscience to make, you know, to make that decision, but there can also be consequences. In other words, you know, if you choose not to vaccinate your children, perhaps they may not be able to be enrolled in a certain school or, or, or something like that. And that comes, that issue comes to mind when I'm thinking about COVID-19 vaccines. I'm, I'm wondering Say a COVID nineteen vaccine comes out, and and we'll assume that there's enough for everybody, um, which may be a little bit down the road. But do you see any issues where for people who don't who choose not to be vaccinated, and maybe you know government mandates will have some sort of religious or conscientious, conscientious objection to that? But do you see situations where those who choose not to be vaccinated? might be denied access to whether it be schools or travel or that type of thing. And I'm just just wondering if you could comment on that. I can certainly say that from my experience uh, in international travel, you know, there were definitely countries in Africa, for instance, where I had to have my vaccine book uh, in order to enter into the country and prove that I had received the yellow fever vaccination or or I remember that as well. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that there is precedent for doing things like that. Um, it would be it would be unusual, you know, to to, to have to show your vaccination booklet uh, in order to fly, you know, inside the United States or or whatever. You know, uh, I would say that uh, it would it would definitely raise some issues, uh, and and I think individuals. Uh, might say, you know, this is kind of an invasion of my privacy in a certain extent, right? To to be forced to to prove that you've received the vaccine in order to do some very ordinary human things. John DiCamillo. Yeah, I see it as very likely, particularly with regard to the school question that you mentioned. I mean, you know, as you know, this is something we already deal with with all the other vaccinations that are required for schools. And so, you know, it would it would utterly shock me if it did not immediately become (laughs) mandatory (laughs) for the schools. Um, You know, so so there although I mean, I'm not saying that I think that it necessarily makes complete sense, because in terms of the again, the prioritization. I think it's pretty clear at the moment that children are not in the highest risk groups that should be receiving it first. But as you said, assuming, you know, once it's available in the broad population, um, I would certainly see it becoming something that schools will will be requiring. Um, this will be, however, complicated by the fact that, you know, depending on how long that takes, are we still, you know, how far are we beyond the period of the, the lack of clarity, the novelty, the experimental nature of it, and so forth? Um, because of course, many of most of the other vaccines, or in fact, all the other vaccines that are required, um, you know, are longstanding vaccines or were around for some time before they became mandatory. Um, so I think there will be, you know, an interesting question of how long will the schools wait before they do it. But I, I have virtually no doubt that the, that it will be a requirement. <laughs> all right, John D. Camillo, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Well, wisdom is a dangerous thing, <laughs> assuming anyone has it. Uh, no, uh, I, I really believe that um, this issue, you know, is very complex. Vaccination issues were already complicated to begin with um, before all of this. And now it's really, I think, uh, you know, catalyzed the issue from a moral standpoint, um, both with the immoral origins of some of the vaccines, as well as with regard to the, um, the issues of, you know, rushing it to market effectiveness and and side effects, et cetera. Um, I think that particularly, I mean, throughout society, but particularly for us as Christians and Catholics, uh, we need to be very, very careful um, about avoiding any unnecessary uh, division, any unnecessary, um, you know, attacks on one another with differences in prudential judgments that are almost certainly going to come to the fore. Uh, You know, the notion that certainly there will be groups of people who will feel strongly and object to this and will not want to get this vaccine as a question of, you know, witnessing to the clarity of life. Um, And they, they may do that. And there may be others who will say, I have very vulnerable people in my family that I want to protect. You know, I have an elderly parent I'm with, I have, you know, immunocompromised family members. uh, And this vaccine is very important to me, or I'm a healthcare worker, or I know people who are healthcare workers. And, you know, there are so many reasons we can all be legitimately, you know, making prudential decisions in our particular spheres and circumstances about whether the vaccination is going to be the right thing for us to do. So what I am, what I'm really wary of is that, um, that somehow we 
we may in strange ways sort of weaponize the notion of charity to suggest <laughs> that, you know, well, we're the ones doing the charitable thing and you're not, you know, in these groups. Weaponized classes. charity. I love that. What a great term. Wow. What a terrible term. Weaponized right. charity. Wow. Yeah. I mean, well, we've been seeing bits of it, I think already with the whole mask issue, but we don't want, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Yeah, gonna, but I mean, I think there today. You're right. <laughs> I think that there have been, um, you know, that there's a real concern that people are going to um, lose sight, you know, of a proper charitable approach to the issue and understanding that people can have um, differences in prudential judgment with clear conscience on an issue that's so complex, that's so multi-layered, and, and where there are um, strong pro-life uh, positions to be taken in a variety of circumstances here. Uh, so I think that that, that would be my, my biggest hope or, or prayer. <laughs> uh, and since it's the first Friday in, uh, in the month of September, uh, you know, it's, a, an opportunity to recall God's great mercy and his sacred heart. Uh, and, and maybe we can, you know, <laughs> contemplate that a bit as we consider, um, you know, the kinds of, uh, thoughts or judgments we might have, um, about others and, and try to, um, rely on his mercy to remind us of how little <laughs> we ultimately know and how often we all fail and how we have to, uh, you know, love and support one another um, in the midst of um, legitimate differences of prudential judgment. Yeah. Well, John, that was actually some pretty good words of wisdom there. That was impressive. <laughs> Don't be fooled. <laughs> <laughs> You had a moment of clarity there. <laughs> Joseph Meany, final words of wisdom for our listeners. Sure. I mean, the thing that comes to mind almost immediately is that vaccines have, have almost a PR problem, you know? It, it's strange how there are very few medical procedures where so many people would object, you know? If their, their physician tells them that they should get this treatment or that treatment, they'll usually go to it. And of course, physicians are almost unanimous in recommending vaccination, uh, but still there's a, there's a wariness in the population. Uh, and, and I think it's even growing. So I think there's a, there's a real issue there of trust and that the people, you know, in general need to be reassured uh, about uh, the origins of the vaccines and the effectiveness of the vaccines and, and not to have this kind of nagging doubt um, in the back of their minds because it could, you know, seriously lead to a lot of public health issues. And I find that um, there's probably probably a, a big part of uh, education that has to be done about, about this issue and also a, a change in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, one of the things that has always kind of bothered me is that uh, the pharmaceutical companies get a blanket protection against being sued uh, for side effects of the vaccines that they give out. You know, there's kind of like a fund for people who, uh, who have problems, but they can't actually sue the companies. Uh, the fact that they require that for this uh, sort of says something, that the companies are scared that there are going to be too many lawsuits. <laughs> um, and, and again, I think it just goes to this issue of, of trust and, and people just don't feel, feel very confident uh, in, in some cases. So there, I think there needs to be a little bit more clarity uh, and, and education and, and perhaps some transparency as well about, you know, how these vaccines are developed and, uh, and their use and effectiveness. Drs. Joseph Meany, 
and John D. Camillo, thank you for your time today. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today, and may God's peace be with you.